Good morning, Mosaic. Good morning. Woo. It is a good morning. We are in the book of Romans. If you've been walking with us uh, for a while, man, it has been such an incredible uh, and wondrous journey stepping through perhaps one of the uh, books of the Bible that has the most clear picture and the most full picture of the beauty of what the gospel is all about, what the good news of who Jesus is, is all about. And we've been traveling through the book of Romans now for a little while, and as we've been walking through, uh, we found that the context of the book of Romans, where, uh, where Paul is writing and, and why Paul is writing, uh, is so valuable for us to understand what exactly is going on as we've traveled through each section of the text of the book of Romans. Uh, what Paul is doing is he's writing to a church in Rome that is, uh, it, it is made up of two main people groups. Uh, people who uh, are Jewish, either by uh, religious decision or ethnicity, primarily ethnicity, uh, and then have become Christians. They've become followers of Jesus. They have seen that Jesus is the Messiah. And in terms of Jewish people, those types of Jewish people, people who recognize Jesus as the Messiah, would have actually been in the minority uh, of the nation of Israel, especially uh, in the nation of Israel, the religious elite, the uh, religious leaders within the nation of Israel uh, as a whole rejected uh, Jesus as the Messiah. But these people in Rome, Paul is writing to, have embraced Jesus as Messiah. And yet, there are still some mentalities that Paul is addressing as he's writing the book of Romans that come from being part of a Jewish uh, background and having a Jewish perspective and the history that the nation of Israel had with God and with uh, what God was doing on planet Earth. The other group of people in the city of Rome that Paul is writing to in the book of Romans are Gentiles. These are non-Jewish people. These are people that did not have Jewish ethnicity and they did not make Jewish religious choices to join the uh, people of Israel and to convert to Judaism. And these are people that primarily have been kind of doing what everyone else in the world had been doing. And really, what every uh, religion or what every spiritual practice or uh, what every uh, belief system was doing other than the nation of Israel is worshiping the creation over the creator. Uh, What every religion does is is it elevates creation above creator in one way, shape, or form. Every religion that is man-made does that. And Paul is writing to these people who have recognized that, no, 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 creation is not elevated, uh, elevated above creator. Instead, uh, God is the God of the universe and Jesus is Lord of all and he is the way and he is the truth and he is the life and I can come to the creator God through Jesus. And so Paul is writing to the church in Rome, people who have recognized that Jesus is the, the Messiah, that Jesus is the Savior, but they come out at that from two very different perspectives and two very different angles. And as Paul is writing in the book of Romans, he's clarifying uh, who Jesus is and what the implications are of that and the way for salvation and the implications of that. And the great misunderstanding that the nation of Israel had throughout the the history of God using them and working through their story, the great misunderstanding that they had is they thought that God chose the nation of Israel for the nation of Israel 
and some other people might end up getting to be a part of God's family. But primarily, the story of God was about Israel. And that was a huge misunderstanding. That's what made it so difficult for people to see the Messiah in the first place. But for even those Jewish Christians who had seen Jesus as the Messiah, they still had that misunderstanding and that mentality rolling around in their hearts and in their minds that, that, that Jesus came and, and yes, some people from outside the community of the nation of Israel might come into faith in Jesus, but really this is more about how Israel is going to be saved, how God is going to be faithful to Israel's promise. And so as we've been tracking through the book of Romans, we've seen the apostle Paul address this mentality over and over and over again in multiple different ways. And because the nation of Israel thought that the story of God was primarily about them, the way that they thought that they would relate to God was based on the, the law that God had given Moses. And the nation of Israel as a whole thought that, that God's story through them was going to be about them establishing a, a righteousness by living by the law. And in that way, God would then kind of really owe them. <laughs> Have you ever felt that way? Like if I do enough good stuff, maybe God will kind of like pay me off. You ever felt that way? I know I have, right? And that was the perspective that the nation of Israel as a whole had. And Paul is writing into this saying, no, actually, God is doing an altogether different thing. And it's so much more glorious than you could have ever imagined. And that's where we find ourselves in the book of Romans. Why don't you grab your Bible? Uh, we are uh, in Romans chapter 10. We're going to start uh, uh, in, in verse 4, although we are in 5 through 17. I'm going to give us a little context with verse 4. It's on page 1047 if you have one of the Mosaic Bibles that you grabbed on your way in. And Paul has been walking us through this incredible journey of, of recognizing what the gospel is all about, what God was up to, what God was doing in the story of the nation of Israel and in, in the story of the Messiah's coming and in the, the, the human story as a, as a whole as a result of what Jesus has done. And so Paul, in verse 4 of chapter 10, he clarifies what the point of the law was, what the reason that God gave the law was in the first place. In verse 4, Paul says, For Christ, Jesus, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, we can understand this verse correctly in two different ways. In two different ways. The first way we can understand this verse correctly is that that this, the end of the law for righteousness in Christ means that when we put our faith in Jesus, we are no longer trying to depend on the law for our righteousness, which is what the nation of Israel had primarily done. They had primarily depended on their ability to follow the law to create a righteousness of their own that God would then have to respond to. And Paul is saying, no, 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 Christ is the end of all that. But beyond what, what that true understanding says, beyond that understanding of verse four, it's even bigger than that. And we, we talk about, um, you know, uh, the means to an end from time to time, right? Like it, it's, it's not the end itself, it's the means to an end. And, and so many people in the nation of Israel thought that the law was the means to get to righteousness. But instead, Paul is saying that actually, no, the, the, the law was a means to an end. And that end would be that you would recognize by trying to obey the law, 
by trying to perfectly obey the law, that righteousness simply was not attainable. In chapter 3 of the book of Romans, we walked through that, that great verse. If you've been around church a long time, perhaps you've even memorized this verse, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That, that there is no person on planet earth who has fully and perfectly obeyed the law that can, that can uh, claim righteousness for themselves. And Paul is saying in verse 4 that Christ is the one who fulfilled the law. And he is the end goal of the law. That by trying to fulfill the law on our own, we would recognize that we can't do it and that we need desperately a savior. Paul writes elsewhere in Galatians that, that, that the law is meant to be our schoolmaster or our tutor to teach us about Christ. That through the law, we would recognize that, that there is a standard of perfection that we cannot meet and that we need a savior. And so Paul in verse four is saying, listen, Christ is the end of all that. He is the end of the law. He is the point of the law. He is the purpose of the law. The reason why God gave the law in the very first place was so that when Jesus the Messiah would come and when he would fulfill the law, that we would see him. And that we would recognize him and that we would know him and that we would cling to him desperately saying, I have no righteousness in and of myself, but Jesus be my righteousness. Now, as we step into verse five, Paul's going to talk a little bit about what, uh, what righteousness is, is, is not, what, what is not the path toward righteousness, what will not lead us toward righteousness. So let's step into verse five together. Check this out. He says, now Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In verse five, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now what Paul is pointing out is actually twofold. The first thing Paul is pointing out is that the law of Moses is actually, it is actually based on, on works. It is actually based on if you can perfectly obey the law, then you will live. If you obey the law, you live. And if you disobey the law, you die. If you've been a part of Mosaic for a long time, you remember as we traveled through the Old Testament, we're on like a eternal journey through the scriptures. It's fun. Uh, we started in Genesis. We're in Romans today. It's good. And uh, it makes the whole preaching like schedule thing a lot easier. What are we going to preach on this week? What's next? It's great. It's great. But we've been traveling through the scripture for years. And when we were in the Old Testament, we learned one major thing. I mean, I just remember over and over our, our pastor, our lead pastor, Renaud, saying, hey, if you do things God's way, it leads to life and freedom. But if you do things your own way, it leads to death and destruction. And we see that over and over and over again throughout each story in the Old Testament and throughout the human story and especially throughout the story of the nation of Israel. That when we obey God, it leads us to life, absolutely. And when we disobey God, it leads us to death and to destruction. And so primarily it, it, it helps us to see that like, look, if we wanted to establish our own righteousness, the only way to do that is to perfectly obey and fulfill the law. And I think Paul uses such interesting wording here. He says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the 
person who does the commandments shall live by them. Guys, how many people on planet earth have perfectly fulfilled the law of God? How many human beings have perfectly fulfilled the law of God? Anybody know? You're both right. You're both right. We've got some zeros in the house and we've got some ones in the house, right? Because the truth is, is that no human being has ever fulfilled the law perfectly except for one. (laughs) The God-man. The one who was fully God and fully man. Jesus came and perfectly fulfilled the law so that the person who does the commandments, Jesus, he is the one who has fulfilled the law. He is the one who actually deserves his status of right standing with God. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. And so Jesus has been the person who has done the commandments. So for those of you who said zero, you are correct in that no human being who has tried to fulfill the law has ever been able to fulfill the law except for the human being who was also God. His name is Jesus. And everything the law does points us to him. The law sets us up to see him for who he is. That he is altogether similar to us because he had human flesh and altogether different because he perfectly obeyed his God. That's amazing. And so Paul says the, 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 the law based on uh, the law that leads to righteousness, that's all about those who do the law and fulfill the law perfectly. And yet none of us have done that. And then he says, and, and here's the thing, the righteousness, verse six, that is based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now that I I feel is just clear enough that we can go ahead and move on because that makes sense to us all, right? Everybody here, we're good. That the righteousness based on faith obviously doesn't say who shall descend into heaven. (laughs) Duh. And and, and it surely, I mean, who will descend into, why would the the righteousness based on faith say that? I mean, come on. All right, let's move to verse eight. No, no, no. I mean, honestly, it's kind of a weird sentence, right? Like these verses are kind of strange, are they not? Like at first reading, you're, you're not like, oh, got it. Let's move on, right? You, you have to dig into this a little bit more. Now in the context, as we understand scripture, context is, is key. I mean, you ha- like, it's like the three laws of real estate are location, 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 right? And the three rules of understanding scripture are context, context, context. There's a little more than that, but context, okay? And in the context, what Paul is trying to help us see is that the people of Israel have been trying to establish their own righteousness. And that's why they missed Jesus. That's why they missed the gospel, the good news of who he is. That's why they didn't recognize that he was the Messiah and that he did all the work that was necessary for our righteousness. So let's read through this again. But the righteousness that is based on faith says, 
do not say in your heart who will go into heaven, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. What Paul is saying is, listen, when our righteousness is based on faith in the work of Jesus, we recognize that we don't have to go up to heaven to beg him to come down because he already did for us. Philippians tells us that he humbled himself, that the God of the universe humbled himself by putting on human flesh and coming and living among us as a human being. He lived a perfect life and then died a horrific death at the hands of those he created. Substitutionary death. He died in our place so that you and I would not have to die for our sins. Jesus died for our sins. And the story doesn't end there. Jesus came down and he lived and he died a substitutionary death. But did Jesus stay dead? <laughs> not a trick question. Our whole faith is based on that one point, okay? If you miss that point, I don't know why you showed up here. I know the donuts and the coffee are amazing, okay? But that's it. Jesus didn't stay dead. I mean, our whole faith hinges upon the fact that Jesus died on the cross as he predicted and then resurrected from the dead as he predicted. And God declared him to be the Messiah in the resurrection from the dead. And so the righteousness that is based on faith doesn't say, well, somebody better go get Jesus out from the dead. Like, we don't have to say that. Why? Because he has already done it. Amen? Whew. So that is what the righteousness based on faith does not say. It doesn't say, well, I got to do all the work that's necessary for salvation. Because Jesus has already done it. Whew, it's good news. So verse 8. All right, so Paul says, okay, this is what it doesn't say. Verse eight, but what does it say? Well, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. What is Paul talking about? Is he talking about the, the faith that you're gonna have 3.2 children, a white picket fence, a Mercedes in the driveway, a nice suit? No. The faith that is in your heart, that, that's near you, in your mouth and in your heart, it's the word of faith that we proclaim. Who is the we that Paul is talking about? Paul is talking about the, the apostolic work that he is doing to go out and to, to, to plant churches and to preach the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is. The word of faith that we proclaim, it's the gospel. It's the good news of who Jesus is, that, that we don't have to go around trying to establish our own righteousness, but that the God of the universe came down and established righteousness on our behalf. And that if we put our faith and trust and hope in him, his righteousness gets given to us, imputed to us, this great exchange where we exchange all of our sin and all of our failure and all of our mistakes. And we take his obedience and his success and his righteousness and his perfection, we take that upon ourselves and we stand in the righteousness that Christ has given us. This is the gospel. Verse nine, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, no one else is Lord, Jesus is Lord. And Jesus isn't something else. He's not just some great teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a really nice guru. 
that Jesus is none other than Lord. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, what Paul is helping us to understand as he's helping the church in Rome to understand is that because we were not able to establish righteousness on our own, because our relationship with God was not right, because we were opposed to God and we were at odds with God because of our rebellion and our sin, as a human race and as, as, as individuals, that we have all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God and none of us can establish our own righteousness. And because we're not right with God, because we are not justified before God, because we are enemies of God by our own decisions, by our own nature and our own choices, because of that, when we die, we do not get to spend eternity with God. Because of that, when we live, we are opposed to our creator. For those of us who are not righteous, for those of us who have not established righteousness, a right standing with God, we are at odds with our creator. And because that is true, you and I are guilty and deserving of punishment. See, as we've traveled through the book of Romans, we've kind of recognized that we're seeing this, this courtroom, this law court unfold in front of us, this spiritual courtroom unfold in front of us. And a lot of us think that in this courtroom, we're, we're kind of the, the observer, the neutral party. Maybe there's some other guilty people. <laughs> and Paul has sat us all down Every single one of us, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter who you are, male, female, doesn't matter who you are, all of us, every human being, because we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God, Paul has set us right down squarely in the guilty defendant's chair. And because we are guilty apart from Christ, because we are guilty apart from righteousness that is given to us in Christ. Because we are guilty, we deserve punishment. And what Paul is saying is that when we confess with our mouth and we believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved from the destruction, from the punishment that you and I rightly deserve. Because Christ takes on our guilt, takes on our sin, and takes on our punishment on the cross of Calvary. And then he gives us, not just like a clean slate, that'd be cool enough, right? But he gives us his right standing with God. He gives us innocence. Oh my gosh, it's so good. And so when we believe and we confess that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, when we confess and believe those things, we will be saved. So Paul begins to unpack kind of how this works in terms of our actual experience. He says, verse 10, for the, with the heart, 
one believes and is justified. And when, with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. So Paul is kind of helping us to see that with our heart, we believe and we're justified. He's talking about our status, that we are, are declared to be right, declared to be innocent. When we believe that Jesus is enough for us, that we're declared innocent, and then our experience comes out of that, that with our mouth, then we confess, and then we experience salvation, and we're saved. This is amazing. What Paul is unpacking for us is incredible. Verse 11, he says, for with the scripture, or for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, this is huge. (laughs) This is huge that everyone, 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 young and old and male and female and black and white and Hispanic, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, Everyone who believes in him will be saved. A lot of people look at Christianity and say, well, you know, you say Jesus is is the only way. That's really narrow. And you know what? Maybe they have a point. Perhaps it's narrow to say that there is only one Savior. Unless, in fact, there is only one Savior. If you are drowning in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean... And up rolls a boat and they throw you a life preserver and you say, now are you the only one? (laughs) Because this is a carnival ship. I'd rather sail with Royal Caribbean, you know? (laughs) Now, of course, in this analogy, Jesus is not a carnival ship. Okay, just so we're all clear. uh, Every analogy breaks down at some point, okay? (laughs) Right? But we don't sit around in the Atlantic Ocean saying, you know, I'd really prefer someone or something else. If Jesus truly is the only one who is coming for you, who has come for you, who has done for you what it requires to have eternal life, to be saved from the destruction that you created for yourself, from your own demise, if he's the only one coming, is it narrow to say that Jesus is the only way? No, it's just accurate. (laughs) But the fact that Jesus is offering salvation to everyone is amazing. There is no one excluded. Jesus says, come, I have made a way, come. He has invited us to participate with him, to come in with him, to experience salvation with him. And it's not narrow because Jesus is offering this to everyone. And Paul is writing this to the book or to the uh, Romans in this letter because the, the Jewish Christians have thought primarily that God was using the nation of Israel for Israel. But the reality is, is that God had used the nation of Israel so that through the nation of Israel, through the coming of Jesus, all of the nations of the earth would be Blessed. God has always been a global God. God has always loved all people everywhere. There is no human being that has ever been born that has been born outside of the love of God. 
No one who is by the status of their birth, whether it is their race or the the family they grew up in or their cultural context, no one has ever been born where God says, yeah, the gospel's not for you. And what Paul is saying is, look, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord Jesus is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Wow. And if it wasn't amazing enough already, This beautiful invitation for everyone to be a recipient of what Jesus has done for us. If that wasn't enough, guess what? It gets even better. Because what Paul is about to do is to help us see that not only has God invited us to be recipients of what Jesus has done, but he's also invited us to be participants in what he is doing. Let's continue reading. Verse 14, he says, now, now how then will they, who are, who, who's this they? They who are going to be recipients of the gospel, the, the recipients of the good news, the people who will be saved, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Okay, that, that makes sense. You don't, you don't really call on someone you don't believe in for salvation, right? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of him, of them who bring and preach good news. So what Paul is saying is, listen, these people who are going to come to know Jesus as their savior, the process by which people hear the gospel is by other people declaring the gospel. So check this out. We who were guilty defendants in the defendant's chair, absolutely caught red-handed, about to be sentenced, Instead, we have been declared innocent and now God has invited us into his story to go and tell everyone he gives us the opportunity to tell what Jesus has done for us. That's so cool that that we who were God's enemies have now been made right with God and now God is allowing us to partner with him in seeing other people become God's friends. This goes back to what Renell, our lead pastor, talked about this last week. It's like this father who is out in the driveway and he's doing all this work on his car. And the father is maybe tra- doing something crazy, changing a transmission in a, in a car. And, and then he invites his son to come out and help him with the transmission. And his son is not like 22 and a mechanic. His son is like, five in this analogy, right? And the son comes out and hands dad some tools and maybe holds a greasy part and kind of gets all dirty. And after the son finishes up with the dad, the son runs in and 
Mom says, hey, son, what did you do with dad? And son says, I changed the transmission. And the mom chuckles because she knows five-year-old son can't even pour milk without spilling it, you know, let alone change a transmission. And what Paul is saying is that from an experience standpoint, although God is doing all of the work that is required for salvation to happen, from beginning to end, Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. God has done all of the hard stuff. God invites us to be a part, a piece of the story of people coming to know Jesus as their savior. That's incredible that God calls us not only to be a recipient of his goodness and of his grace and of his love, but he also invites us to be participants. Now for some of us, as we hear this, it's like, oh, so what are you telling me, Joel? Are you telling me that now I have to get up on a stage and, and preach? That's how many, how many of you would this, what I'm doing right now, just terrify you? Just hands up. You're like, I don't even want to, I'm scared to raise my hand, right? <laughs> I'm proud of you. Okay. How many of you would like to do it? Hands up. Here you go. I'm just going to be, just take us through the rest. That'd be great. No, I mean, here, here's the thing. What Paul is not saying is that all of us are now called to like public speaking and, and public evangelism and, and doing, doing all of this upfront stuff. In fact, there are 10,000 ways to preach the gospel that have nothing to do with what I'm doing here today. That when we go into our workplace and we don't participate in gossip, that preaches the gospel. That, that instead of uh, jumping in and, and uh, on the bandwagon of how everyone hates the boss... Instead, thinking about something positive to say in that moment, that preaches the gospel. That, that when there is tragedy around us and we step into that tragedy, we help a neighbor who their tree fell into their house or we step into a situation where someone doesn't have electricity and, and we, we lend them our generator or whatever it may be that we do that shares and demonstrates the gospel. There are 10,000 ways to do it. There's another beautiful and amazing way that God is inviting us into and that is actually using our mouths to tell people what Jesus has done for us. And that can be in hundreds of forms. That can be in a one-on-one -on -one conversation. That can be over a dinner table with our family. That could be uh, in a workplace as a Coworker is maybe sharing with you something that's going on in their life that we just declare very, very calmly, hey, you know, thank you for sharing what's going on in your life. Can I just share with you what, what has made such a huge impact in my life? And then just tell the simple story of what Jesus has done for you. Some of us in this space are actually kind of called to what I'm doing, Right? Some of us are called to that. Some of us are called to getting in front of a group of people and telling people about what Jesus has done. Some people are called to actually go from, from comfy central Florida somewhere else in the world to be a part of what God is doing to declare and demonstrate the gospel to people around us. I don't know what your story is and I don't know exactly what God is inviting you into but I do know this, 
that God has been gracious enough to give us salvation and wonderful enough to invite us in to participate with him in declaring the good news in one way, shape, or form about who Jesus is. And God will do all the hard work. God will do all the saving. God is able. We don't have to worry about the results. He's done all the hard work and he's just invited us to do the simple task of sharing what Jesus has done. And a caveat, verse 16, Paul gives us a warning, a reminder, especially for us, this is so helpful, as American results-driven people. <laughs> we love our results, don't we? Paul says it's, it's not about results. And in fact, you will often experience negative results. Verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. <laughs> not everyone is going to believe in Jesus as, as their savior. Can we not see that that is true in our society and in our culture, in our workplace, maybe even in our family? We recognize that not everyone is going to obey the gospel, which says, confess that Jesus is Lord and that you're not. Believe in your heart that, that God raised him from the dead. There are many people who will not believe in Jesus for salvation. And it isn't about getting everyone to believe. It isn't about you know, making a bunch of converts. It isn't about making a bunch of sales. It isn't about like, well, how many pagans did you get this week? You know, it isn't some sort of a like hunting trip, right? It is participating with a loving God who is declaring to the world that Jesus can make them right with him. That's what it is. They've not all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? See this partnership. Isaiah's uh, demonstrating that there's a partnership that, that, that what we declare that is true about God, that God is with us in that. that. That there is a message from God that we have to give to the world and not everyone is going to believe it. And here's where it all comes to a head. Verse 17. So faith, it, it comes from hearing not just anything, not just hearing a good idea or hearing the next self-help tip, hearing some sort of a, a silver bullet for life from some guru on television or on the radio or on the internet. I don't think anyone uses radio anymore. It is not just about hearing anything. <laughs> Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You know, from the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden, from Adam and Eve, God has always desired for us to trust him, to believe him, to see him for who he is, and to recognize who we are. And this is the essence of what putting our faith in Jesus is, is that we recognize that we are not God, and that Jesus is. That we have failed. That he is perfect. That we cannot make a way for ourselves. But that he has made a way. And we believe. When we believe in our hearts. We confess with our mouths. And when we confess with our mouths. We're saved. 
And we become recipients of the good news of Jesus. And then God says, now you're my recipients, how about being participants? What an incredible God that we serve. Though we would have tried to establish righteousness on our own and failed. God said, I'm gonna do it for you. I'm gonna do all the hard work and then I'm gonna invite you into the story. How amazing is our God, amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for who you are. We certainly do not deserve you. We don't. You have done so much. You have done all of the work, all of the hard work of justifying sinful people. Jesus, thank you for who you are, that you did come and, and you lived and, and you died and, and then you didn't stay dead, that you resurrected from the dead. And that because of your perfect life, you were the perfect sacrifice for our sin. That you died in our place and you took on our punishment, the punishment we deserved so that we could have relationship with you and eternal life that begins the moment we believe. And God, thank you that after you make us right with you, the story doesn't end there, but that you send us out, that you call us to participate with you in this beautiful story that you are unfolding. God, help us to recognize the incredible work that Jesus has done on our behalf. Help us to embrace it. Help us to believe it. Help us to confess it every day. God, I thank you that you are all we need and what we need. And God, help us to have the courage to participate with you. What a privilege that that invitation is for us that we just do not deserve. God, help us to get loud with the gospel in thousands of different ways, in our families and in our workplaces and in our communities, in our city. God, that you would help us to demonstrate and to declare who Jesus is. And God, that we would have the courage to share the gospel when you give us an opportunity. Not worrying about the results, God, that's in your hands. But knowing that you are the point of it all. Jesus, you are the point of it all. You have always been the point from beginning to end. Thank you for what you've done. We love you, God. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.